State. There's lots of ways that you can get involved on campus at App. There's lots of great student organizations and clubs that you know, know about. Uh, some of my favorite other student organizations besides RUF are Secular Appalachian Student Society, formerly a Appalachian Atheist Agnostic Association. That's a great club. The Appalachian Nerd Network, which meets in this room before us, is a great club. Um, we have lots of different clubs that just span all kinds of different backgrounds, thoughts, philosophies, ideologies. We have the Meditation Club. We have apps. We have our LGBT Center. You, we have college Republicans and college Democrats and Young Americans for Liberty and Young Democrats of Watauga County. There's lots of options. And my question for you tonight is, you know, those are like eight or nine of hundreds of student organizations on our campus. And um, in that kind of robust, diverse marketplace of ideas and perspectives, um, what place does Christianity have in any of that? Um, does Christianity even make any sense in a setting like ours at a university where there's tons of different thoughts and philosophies on the world? Um, does Christianity make sense in that? Is Christianity just another part of that marketplace of ideas um, or does Christianity have something special to offer to a place with hundreds of different kinds of groups and different kinds of perspectives? Well, I would say that not only does faith in, in Jesus make sense in a place like Appalachian, but actually um, that faith in Jesus makes sense of the deep longings of all the wonderful people that compose all of those different groups on campus. We all have uh, very deep longings for what we would like to see in ourselves and in the world. And I think that faith in Jesus really begins to make sense of that. And this passage that we're looking at tonight in Acts chapter 17 gives us a sense of how. So I want to read this. We're, we're, uh, we have two more talks in our, in our study of the book of Acts. Acts is the story of what happened after the life of Jesus. How did the Christian faith go from this small little local thing? to uh, the worldwide phenomenon that we know it as today called the church. So I'm going to be in Acts 17, starting in verse 36. And I'm going to read a little quickly because it's a little long. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends, uh, I think it was Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him. He's in Athens, by the way, uh, Greece, not Georgia. A little sadness in Athens, Athens Georgia, this Saturday. For my beloved Auburn Tigers. Anyway, um... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city of Athens was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of, them were, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and then he quotes some, some Greek um, sources, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Uh, This is the word of the living God. I'm going to pray and ask his blessing on it and on our campus. Father, we're grateful tonight um, to be able to gather together. And even as we're grateful, uh, Lord, we are grieving um, because of the loss of one of our students, uh, your beloved Alexis, Lord, who um, passed this week. Lord, we pray for her family, uh, even as we've gathered uh, this evening uh, to remember her uh, out on Sanford Mall. Lord, we pray for her sisters in the Rho Theta chapter of Delta Sigma Theta sorority and ask your um, kindness to the community that surrounded Alexis and to all that, that loved her and were loved by her. Thank you for her service here. And Lord, we're grateful that you call her your beloved and that she is safe with you. And Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to you by faith. We can look forward to our future. We thank you that you uh, really do uh, live um, uh, in the midst of us, that you give us a purpose uh, on our campus, and that, Lord, you're very good. So we ask that you would show your goodness now to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're here tonight, and we by no means assume that everyone that's here is a Christian person or even knows where you are, but if you're a Christian person, you may have thought to yourself, how is it that I'm supposed to interact in a setting where the, most of the people around me are not Christians? They don't share my thoughts on the world and on God. How am I supposed to meaningfully interact with people that are different from me? What I want to do is quickly look at what Paul did. He's in Athens, Greece, um, a very, what we would call, pagan place. There were no Christian folks there. And uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was ethnically Jewish, and he was going around the ancient world telling people about Jesus. And he finds himself in Athens, which was the intellectual capital of the world, the powerhouse for philosophy and and, uh, intellectual study and and academic rigor. Uh, Athens... Um, was the powerhouse for philosophy. It made Wall Street look like a check-cashing store, you know, or Silicon Valley look like a basement tech startup. I mean, Athens was the place for philosophy. And in that place, Paul gains a, a, an audience, and this is what he did. First, he observed. If, you, if you're trying to get a sense of how do I, how do I interact as a Christian um, in a secular, what we call a secular and non-Christian environment, uh, he observed, he listened, he absorbed what was going on around him. He didn't despise the culture around him, but he entered into it to understand it and engage himself into it. He paid attention. He got outside of his bubble. 
Uh, he allowed himself to be burdened for the people there. In verse 16, it says that he, his spirit was provoked because he saw the city was full of idols. He affirmed them. I'm just going to kind of run through this quickly. He looked at them. He says, I see that you're very religious. He speaks to these people and affirms what's going on with them. He doesn't immediately critique them. He investigated. He says, I've gone around. I've, I've observed the objects of your worship and I've sought to understand them. He understood what those things meant. He took the opportunity to introduce them to God. I love that he says he saw a tomb that said to the unknown God. And then he said, what you say is unknown, I present to you as known. He spoke the language. He quoted two Greek philosophers to them and he understood their arguments. And he reasoned with them. He warned them. He told them about the resurrection of Jesus. And really what that is a picture of, I think, is that Paul was inviting these people who had never heard of Jesus into a relationship with Jesus. He took the time to understand the people around him well enough to meaningfully engage with them and to invite them into what God is doing. And in that spirit, what I want to do uh, with you tonight is I want to give you an invitation. Using Paul's case here, an invitation to know God and to know um, satisfaction for three of our deepest longings. Because I believe that the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, makes sense of three deep longings that we all have. A longing for for an identity, a longing for justice, and a longing for hope. Okay, Uh, We have a longing for identity. We long to know who we are and why we are here. I love what Seth was sharing tonight, that sense of longing to know what am I supposed to do, who am I, where am I supposed to be. Um, And what Paul says to us in this passage, if you look in verse 24 and following, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He starts by telling the people there at the Areopagus, the center of thought. God is the creator of all things. He created you and he created everything. And then he gets down to verse 9. He says, and we are his offspring. What Paul is saying is, may sound subtle to some of us, but it's actually very revolutionary, which is that God is not a, a product that we make. He is not a product of our imagination, but we are in fact a product of God's imagination. God is not something we make up. He's not something in the material realm. Most of the time we, we make up God. We imagine that God is basically like us. He's a person in our life that can help us achieve the things that we want to achieve, but he's very quiet. So we get kind of bored with him, right? Uh, But the good news is that that God, the God that we make up and we only go to occasionally when we need help with something, isn't the real God. Our God is the one who created all things, seen and unseen. The one who holds everything together. The one who created time and matter. The one who made it, who came up with the idea that you could see something or hear something. That is our God. God is not like us. But we are like him. He does not draw from us, but we draw from him. He is not in our image, but we are in his image. He is not formed by our imagination, but we are formed by his imagination. We do not produce him. He produces us. We are dealing when we talk about the God of the Bible. We are talking about a being that is beyond our comprehending. We're talking about one that holds everything in his hands The one whom Paul says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Any of us here tonight who are living and moving and having a being have that in God. And that's good news for us because we don't make our own identity. We don't make our own meaning of the world. 
We are under tremendous pressure in our current moment because we feel that we have to make sense of the world from what goes on inside of us. And we have to produce an identity from inside of us and then tell the world to deal with that identity. But our identity is not something we find in ourselves. It's something that God gives to us as being created in his image. Sarah Jane Kennelly shared last week, and I thought it was wonderful. She said, if God was the one that made everything, all these beautiful things, then I must be beautiful too. And I thought that was a beautiful statement to say, God in his beauty made all things and he also made you. Paul later on says in the book of Ephesians that we are God's workmanship. That word for workmanship means like a master craftsman, like, like master work is what human beings are in God's economy. We are his workmanship. And why is that good news for you tonight uh, in mid-November at App State? Um, my, we have, my wife and I have three daughters, and they're awesome most of the time. And uh, some of the time. And, uh, and um, something that my wife does so often that I kind of forget that it happens is that when my children are struggling... Um, to be kind or they're struggling with their self-worth or they're struggling to listen to what mom and daddy had to say to them, she will get down at their level and she will take their face in her hands and she will say, God made you. And what she's saying in that moment is she is telling them, you have unbelievable worth and value because God made you. You are not an accident, my friends. You are not the result of blind processes. You are not random You are not disposable. You are not dispensable. God made you. You matter because God made you. Uh, There's a guy named Rankin Wilborn who's a pastor. And I really appreciated what he had to say on this. He said, uh, most of us have wondered at one time or another if we were switched at birth. Are those really my parents? Now imagine your parents are mean and critical. I mean, some of us don't have to imagine that. Uh, Some of you don't have to imagine that. that you've always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day you find a dusty trunk in the attic. You quietly pick the lock, because you pick locks, and open the trunk and discover papers that prove you had, in fact, been abducted as a baby. These aren't your parents at all. Why, they're criminals. You discover that your real mom was a painter at the Sorbonne in Paris, and your real dad was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a professional baseball player. And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I am extraordinary. I knew it all along. And you also read that they are fabulously wealthy and have a lavish inheritance waiting for you. Um, As crazy as that sounds, that is the reality of what's happening Um, tonight. If you're being reminded or being told for the first time that God made you. God made you in his image so you matter. We long for identity. And you were made in God's image. But we also long for justice. Um, we long for things in the world to be put right, whether on the personal level, relational level, or in the world geopolitical level. And that's actually one of the most obvious longings, I would say, of, uh, at App State on our campus, is that we long for justice. I think it's one of, the, one of the best things about our campus, one of the most beautiful things about our campus. And how that often looks for us um, is that we identify uh, oppressive injustice, And we repent of our involvement in that injustice, which is a beautiful and a good thing. And then we try to build a society that sets history right. 
And uh, I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm actually saying that's beautiful, saying recognizing injustice, repenting, moving away from that, and then trying to build a just society is good and beautiful because it is a reflection of what God does and what God cares about. It's beautiful because it's a vision from God. And I would submit to you that justice really only makes sense if it's something that God is doing, if it's something that God, that we respond to, that God does. We seek justice in the world because God is just. He is what we would call righteous. If you look in verses uh, 30 and 31, you'll see that uh, there, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he's talking about Jesus. What Paul is saying is this, is the world is not as it should be. It doesn't just appear to be broken and unjust. It is, in fact, broken and unjust because we are in rebellion from our God who is righteous. And he is putting it to rights. And and on the one side of the coin, I understand that that sounds scary to talk about that God is going to judge the world. He's going to bring his justice to bear. But that's good news for us tonight, and, and, and this is why. Um, if God is doing what he says he's going to do, which is he's going to judge the world in perfect righteousness, rightness, um, that makes moral sense of history. That means that the, the, the events of history will not, in a sense, go unchecked, that the rights will be put wrong. It's all heading toward a, a, a destination, to a resolution. In the end, if God created you, you are not meaningless. And in the end, if God is just, then nothing that has happened will have been meaningless. Uh, There will be no escaping um, justice in the end. All the wrongs will be put right. And that's not because it'll just all work out. If you're keenly observing at all your own life or the world around you, it is not the case that things just work out in the end. It's because God is completely just. When, when the Bible says that God is righteous, what it means is that everything that God is and says and does is perfectly right. There's no mixed motive in it. It's perfectly pure. He doesn't judge anything on a curve or deal in any bribes or backroom deals. The God who made you and made the world will put everything to rights in the end. Um, And that's good news because it makes sense of history. We are always, I think, longing to want to be on the right side of history, to make things right, to atone for things that happened in the past. And what we know, if Christianity is true, is that that history does make moral sense in the end. Uh, And I would argue that we don't care too much about justice, but we actually care too little about justice. Um, I want to use a little bit of a sort of a, a raw example. I know this just happened this week, but um, you know, a lot of stuff has come out in the past few weeks about uh, sexual abuses by various men in power in the entertainment industry, and one of those was Louis C.K. this past week, and uh, which was the you know one of the craziest things was that he actually like admitted that he did it, which was you know uh, surprising to say the least. But on the one hand, when, he, when when what happened from that, if you kept up with any of the the details of it, is that he he on the one hand, played by the rules, the cultural rules, right? Like what we say, consent, 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 consent. And absolutely, consent, yeah, hear me saying consent, consent, consent. He got consent for the acts that he did. On the one hand, he followed 
the rules. But we understand that even he followed that rule, it was still really icky and wrong because he was abusing the power that he had over these women, right? That he was using his power as a control mechanism, even though he was following by the rules. And what we long for, I think, is a full and perfect justice and righteousness that doesn't just make people follow the rules, but deals with that icky, abusive power stuff that says, like, I I played by the rules, but it was still wrong. Do you you, you feel that sense? How do we begin to deal with that? Um, We long for a full and a perfect justice. And what we know is that when God in his righteousness judges the world, everything is put to rights. So we long for justice. uh, We long for identity, but we also long for hope. Um, We are a perfectly anxious people. Uh, Yesterday, I was in a meeting with the director of the counseling center. Great guy. And um, I'm like, dude, your job is intense. Um, But what he was saying was that over the last couple of years, anxiety has actually replaced depression as the main reason why people come in to the counseling center. Counseling is a beautiful and good thing. It's not for people that have problems. Well, I mean, it is for people that have problems. So that means everybody in this room should go to counseling. It's wonderful. Um, But anxiety has eclipsed depression as the the main reason why people come in because we're worried. We're anxious about tomorrow. We're anxious about next week, about finals, about next semester, about graduation, about our relationships, what's going to happen next. And we feel very out of control of our lives. And we long to have hope for the future, that instead of being anxious about what's going to happen, I would actually look forward and hope to what is going to happen And uh, this is where our longing for hope kind of intersects with our longing for justice, and they seem sort of mutually exclusive. Because like I said, we long for a full and a perfect justice where everything gets put to right. Well, God will not just ignore our destruction of relationships. He won't ignore our destruction of ourselves. He won't ignore our destruction of our planet or of our neighbor. But he's going to make it right, right? That's something that I think we long for. But if God is perfectly just and righteous, that means that our seemingly small destructions and injustices won't slide by either. I don't think any of us have a sense that we would stand before something that was perfectly pure and righteous. Uh, You know, when you're trying to outrun a bear while we're on it, um, you don't have to be the fastest person in your group, right? Like, you just have to, like not be the slowest person in your group, right? Um, You have to be faster than the slowest person in your group if you hope to outrun a bear. And uh, we tend to see ourselves like that Um, when we think about our standing before God. We say, I'm not as bad as this person. Um, But what we're talking about here is ultimate and full justice. So if no injustice is going to slide by a righteous God, what hope do we have? Um, and for some of you guys, I know that question sounds silly, or that question doesn't really land, but for some of you, it does, because some of you are paying attention enough to what's going on around you and what's going on inside of you to go, if God is the beautiful and pure and righteous being that I long for him to be, what hope do I have? And what's beautiful about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that the center of it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's entire argument that he builds to here, where God himself became a human like us 
and was crushed on the wheel of violent and unjust human history. Who, God himself who allowed himself to be dealt with as one who was unjust at the cross. And when he rose from the dead, what Jesus did was he secured a future for all of us that would trust in him. That he would take our place and in his death would give us his life. Um, that your guilt, your unrightness would be his guilt, his unrightness. And his innocence would be your innocence. So that God would be both just, completely just, and the justifier, the one that makes you right. Both of those things stand in God's purity and his righteousness. His righteousness now is your righteousness if the resurrection is true. And you can believe that everything that Jesus said because he's the only person that rose from the dead. The only person that overcame death. And what that means that, uh, is that Jesus, like Kendrick, I'm a Kendrick super fan, um, I, my favorite song on Good Kid Mad City is Sing About Me, I'm Dying of Thirst, just FYI, and uh, great song. But at the end of Sing About Me, he says, fighting for your rights even when you're wrong. If you guys don't know the song, you need to go listen to it tonight. But that's what Jesus, in a sense, is doing in us in the res- for us in the resurrection, is that he's fighting for our rights even though we are perfectly wrong. And that's resurrection hope. That's something that God does for us. He's completely just, yet we have hope because he, is, he has been raised from the dead and given us new life. We can hope for the future because the resurrection is actually true. It actually happens. Jesus was not held by death, but now gives you life. Death is not the end anymore. Uh, and if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, what's, what's beautiful in the first um, in the wine, the witch, and the wardrobe, is that when Aslan goes to the stone table and takes up this beautiful picture of Jesus dying on the stone table for his people, is that he says, when, when one that's perfectly innocent goes to the, gives himself up purely um, for a guilty party, uh, death itself will begin to work backward. And that's what's happening in the resurrection, is that death is now beginning to work in reverse. <laughs> The gospel makes sense of our deepest longings for hope, our deepest longings for justice, and our deepest longings for identity. And I uh, just wanted to end with a couple of thoughts. Uh, Don Cuppet, who's a, who's a theologian, um, he talks about our life in the West. And I, I really was, uh, Colin sent me this article and he was quoted in it. He says, nobody in the West can be wholly non-Christian. You may call yourself a non-Christian, but the dreams you dream are still Christian dreams. And why I think that is so powerful is because everyone in this room has longings, like I said, for an identity, for justice, and for hope. And those sound true and, and ring true in us um, because they are true. When someone experiences trauma, you like, send good thoughts and good vibes toward them. You know, that, that thing. You send, I'm going to send you some vibes. Um, I'm like, send me some, some vibes on Venmo, you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, or you say, like, there's a, you know, something bad happens, there's a reason for everything, right? Or the universe sent me a sign. Or it'll all work out in the end. And can I, can I lovingly invite you to consider that the reason why those things feel so true and the reason why they resonate and the reason why we find it tremendously comforting, even if we don't believe in God, to think it'll all work out in the end is because it's true. Because God is real, and what you proclaim as unknown, I proclaim to you as known. 
that the Lord Jesus is real and he's inviting you to know him, the one that made you. We all long to know our true identity, to experience perfect justice, and to have hope for the future. And God, I hope, is showing you tonight that those longings are made sense of and met in him. And the question really before us is, what will you do with this God? Some mocked when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Will you mock? Some said, we will hear you again about this. Maybe you would have enough to be interested and keep coming back and hearing more. Um, But others believed. And I love this in verse 34. Whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. That's a real person that lived in real time that believed in Jesus in that moment. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Will you fall at this God's feet? He's inviting you to know him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can know you by faith in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we, uh, we really want to know who we are. Do we matter? And the answer is absolutely yes, because you made us in your beauty. And Lord, we, we, we've fallen and we, we confess that we are part of what is wrong in our communities in our relationships and in the world. But yet, Lord, we long for you to put everything to right. And Lord, we also long to have hope for the future that the best is not past, but the best is yet to come. And we know that we can hope in that because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Death is not the end. It's not the answer. But life triumphs in the end. Lord, would you help us to come to you, to fall at your feet, and to receive with satisfaction for those long years we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Soft and lonely, you lost and lonely, you just like heaven.